The following episode contains subject matter pertaining to mental health. These topics may be sensitive in nature and could be triggering to some listeners. This episode is not intended to be a substitute for professional or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please visit your local emergency department or call 911. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment. A story to share. Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. Anxiety about what's going to happen in your country, if your country is going through a thought process, political, social, or economical. Um, you worry about your family, you worry about your friends. They won't really think about mental health because mental health is pretty serious in China. So, and also like, it's kind of like stigma mm. in China. So we want necessary to relate it with mental health. If you're telling your parents, like you had mental issue, they really, they're just thinking like you are getting so weak, so mentally weak. I, for the first couple of days, I just decided to, I said, okay, I'm not going to talk regarding this problem with anyone. And then. I couldn't resist anymore, so I just felt that okay, I have to speak someone with someone, and then it was one of my peer supporters, if I'm not mistaken, feel that you're not okay, you're not feeling good. So, is there anything that I can help you with, or is there anything that you want to speak about? You wanna do you wanna have a coffee or something? First, I said no, I'm fine. I just need to be alone for a short time, and then. I think it was ten minutes after that that I said, "Hey, do you have time?" So I approached it three times, mm-hmm. and um, my biggest hesitation was my problem's not that big. Mm. I so saw minimizing, of, right? Yeah, just minimizing it. Um, after that, I I thought my classmates are gonna look at me weird if I go into the office because it's pretty apparent, right? It's the office of mental health. Stigma is such an interesting uh, term because I think that at a broad systemic kind of public facing level, I think that stigma, we've made big advances in terms of what you see visibly. A lot of people will say, well, look at Bell, let's talk, look at the CAMH campaign, look at what you see visibly. And that's certainly not something that you would have seen decades ago. But I still believe that when it comes down to stigma, when you're talking about individual people It comes down to who do they feel safe and comfortable disclosing to and talking about. And that really depends on how people have chosen to communicate um, about those issues themselves. So I think that when you look at individual students, the stigma they feel might be one way with a particular even professor, and it might be a different way with a different TA. It's not that necessarily I feel stigmatized by them, but something about the way they're communicating or 
the way they are comporting themselves is activating my own self-stigma that I should not be asking for help. I don't know as if society, I think societal stigma, we've moved a long way, but I do think that self-stigma is still a really big thing. And that is what really can prevent people from asking for help a lot still. First is we want to provide help when somebody's having a panic attack. And a panic attack is um, when you something triggers you, that trigger brings back bad memories of trauma. Um, and your body has a physical reaction where your heart starts beating really fast. You have the sensation that you can't breathe. You actually think you're dying. So that's why for us, for me personally, uh, I often, I used to get a lot of panic attacks um, in subways. Subways is a big, a difficult space mm -hmm. to go into uh, because I come from a country of war. I've ex been exposed to really bad things at war. So I'm really, uh, my triggers are like the subway. My triggers are sirens. My triggers are like aircrafts that fly. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I needed to learn how to say that I'm okay at this moment, that I'm not in danger. And, it, and that deep breathing, uh, that I learned through my therapist, I wanted to make this accessible to folks who don't have this. World Mental Health Awareness Day is observed on October 10th every year, with the overall objective of raising awareness of mental health issues around the world and talking about what more needs to be done to make mental health care a reality for everyone. The topic of care was the inspiration of this episode. The original idea was drawn from our own struggles as teachers in helping our students and our feelings of frustration in not knowing what our school offered in terms of help and how the school could actually help our students. Then we realized that probably most teachers, if not all, everywhere might be in the same position. Research for this podcast has helped us immensely, and we hope teachers and institutes will find what follows helpful, if not, of course, incomplete. Today's focus is on post-secondary and international study where mental health rates among university and college students are on the rise in Canada. If I showed you a graph of um, the demand over the last 20 years, it's like this. It's just constantly increasing the demand. If you look into campus life in Canada today, this is one of the things that you hear about, that there's a mental health crisis. One out of every five post-secondary students across the country has some kind of mental health problem, be it anxiety or depression. That's from a recent national survey of colleges and universities across Canada. That's right, one out of every five. And the thing is, a lot of them don't get the help they need. So the question I have is, if you're a person with mental health issues, how do you get through school? 
For those of us in education, the question remains, what can we do? Issues of mental health can be even tougher in a new country, in a new language, in a new culture. International students, refugees, and other newcomers experience mental health as anyone else would, perhaps more so, with factors like stigma, shame, and survivor's guilt lingering. Well, I see people here for counseling as part of a more holistic service. Um, and the main presenting issues, I would say, would be post-traumatic stress. Um, people might not know that it is post-traumatic stress, uh, but when, when they start talking about insomnia, flashbacks, hypervigilance, we can often relate it back to some traumatic um, experiences they've been through. For youth especially, we, we find that whenever we talk about mental health issues that they're facing, they talk more about uh, self-esteem, so having low self-esteem, um, low and uh, facing identity crisis, uh, low sense of self-care, risks uh, into sort of self-harm, and we also now, you know, youth receive a lot of suicide among newcomers, or, or youth talking about suicide when it gets to, to the extreme, extreme cases. As instructors, many of these people are our students. The aim of this episode is to try to unpack all of this at least a little bit to listen, to learn, to raise awareness, and to continue the discussion. There are three segments to today's show. In segment one, we talk to three international students in Canada to hear their perspective on mental health. In segment two, Natalie Roach, the mental health coordinator for Toronto's Ryerson University, joins us to talk about strategies instructors and programs can implement. In the final segment, we talk to Sakina Mihar, one of the co-founders for startup Savintech, an app designed to help newcomers and refugees with post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a very special episode of Teacher Talking Time. We usually say, thanks for listening. But in this case, really, thanks for listening. To kick things off, we sat down with three international post-secondary students in Canada. So my name is Pedron. I was born in Iran and then I immigrated to Dubai, Turkey, and Cyprus as well. And now I'm here in Canada. Mm -hmm. So my name is Sophia Shanahan, and I come from Venezuela. Okay, um, so I'm from China. My name is Ilan. I'm studying at Rawson as a, a finance student, and I came to Canada for two years. I came here last year on September 3rd. Uh, I came six years ago, and I went to school first in ILSB in Montreal. Then I took English at ILAC in Toronto, and I took uh, publishing in Centennial College. Before looking at what we can do to serve them better, 
we thought we should listen to their thoughts, experiences, and insights on mental health. These are their stories. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you. I'm gonna talk about some statistics, and I want to want you to tell me if you think there's based on your experience at university in Canada or otherwise, if you think they're surprising or not. Okay. So according okay. to a Globe and Mail study of, from 2018, okay. 44% of Canadian higher education students were surveyed. There were a lot of them, almost 44,000 students were surveyed, okay? And okay. 44% of them said that they felt depressed over the previous year and that they felt it was difficult to function. Um, and that was up from 38% in 2013. So a 7 or 8% increase over that period of time. That report also said that 70% of mental health issues start in childhood or adolescence, and that currently in Canada, suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth aged 17 to 24. Uh, and the report also goes on to say that university and, and college or post-secondary services have seen a huge spike in requests for from students for help with mental health. They're estimating over 400% increases in requests from students to the services of schools for mental health assistance. Um, So my question to you is, what is your reaction to those statistics? Is that surprising, not surprising, based on your experience as a student talking to friends, yourself, and just being in a university environment? Uh, Actually, to be honest, it didn't surprise me. I could kind of guess that. I mean, I can see that, especially between my classmates or doesn't matter if they're international students or they're domestic students. Mm-hmm. Whenever we're talking together, I can see that they're kind of frustrated or disappointed. No matter it's something related, there is something that they are disappointed. Oh, I mean, I don't know whether it's something family related or financial related, or I don't know interpersonal relation right. that relationships that they have. I think. So based on the conversations that I have or had, it, these numbers didn't surprise me. To me, they, they're really high. I mean, um, I had no idea there were so many people seeking for help, and I'm happy to know. Um, it's surprising the, the, the percentage of suicide, suicides in teens, because mm. it's, uh, I, I had no idea that it was. It was such a problem. Yeah. It says it's 24% uh, of people in Ontario who mm-hmm. die between 15 and 24. 24% of them is by suicide. Yeah. It still sounds pretty high to me. To be honest, I don't think it's, uh, it's very surprising to me. It's kind of like, I know, like, I know this is something happening, but I just don't know the exactly number. Yeah. Okay. It's not surprising to you. It's not surprising because um, I feel the problem with mental health is like you need to know full family to taking care of it, and that is the hard part for entire society. So again, focusing this episode on mental health for students, for international students, generally speaking, post-secondary education. Uh, the first question for you is what 
in your opinion, what additional stresses and factors contributing to mental health issues do international students face that other students may not? I mean, stress, anxiety is part of education, no matter what you're studying or, or where you're from. But being an international student, what additional stresses might might those students face? For example, language can be a, a huge um, stress factor, and it can cause a lot of anxiety every time you go to, to the classroom and try to talk to your your classmates or even your teachers. I think in the first one, the top one going to be in a language. If you are not an international student who come from a language like English country, the language is going to be the like the biggest problem because when you trying to make friends, try to communicate with others, even just doing like daily grocery shopping. If you couldn't speak well, it would be like pretty embarrassing to going out. In my first year in Canada, I was so stressed because I, when I first got to Canada, I couldn't really order coffee by myself. Mm. So that was causing me like I was actually, I feel I was actually depressed. I don't know how, how I can do better to improve my language. When I first time like trying to join some committing, going to a weekly meeting, I couldn't, like I barely understand anything. Um, also, um, there's a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen in your country if your country is going through a tough process, political, social, or economical. Um, you worry about your family, you worry about your friends, First thing first, especially in that time of the global environment, especially political situations that we have, I think the rate of currency for, of different countries is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the most important things that students are dealing with are uh, financial issues. And another one will be financial stress because for international students, you actually for this semester, I paid triple than domestic students. Right. Yeah. Also, um, another one could be money because um, as an international student, you're not allowed to ask for student loan, for example. Mm. And um, and it's a huge stress to just go at the end, to, till the end of the, the semester and be sure that the program's paid off and you're going to still going to be able to eat and to get your clothes and especially in Canada you have to get all your winter clothes which is um, yeah it, it's not cheap so right. um, I, I can say that the least stressful thing for me was my grade my performance How much do you think culture plays a factor in the phrase getting help is not not the best one, but in approaching or asking for help or sitting down with somebody and talking about it. Uh, we're talking about the international student community. So students coming from many, many different parts of the world, the topic of mental health has many different connotations in different parts of the world and different cultures for a variety of reasons. Do you think culture or cultural background of international students prevents them from asking for help? As an extension of that, in your culture, how much is it discussed? Just generally speaking, is you know, I would say there's probably a stigma everywhere. But to what extent is there a stigma? Is it still a large stigma? Not so much. And did that affect your decision to seek help or not seek help when you were here in Canada? 
Sure. Um, so back in Venezuela, there was um, still a stigma. I think it's been changing over time as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is still this thought of, um, I hate to say it like this, but it's like, I'm not crazy. I don't have to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And there is this uh, thought of, um, I don't want to, I don't want my coworkers to know, or I don't want my family to know. Uh, the stigma is pretty much there. Uh, but certainly coming to Canada was pretty eye-opening for me okay. when I saw that uh, there was a lot of um, talk about depression, anxiety, and many other uh, mental issues, mental health issues. And um, that helped me a lot to understand that it was okay, that if you were sad or you were depressed it was okay and it was okay to talk about it because you were not alone yeah i would say people won't necessarily try to if you feel like feel bad today they won't necessarily to say it's something related with mental health they probably just say uh we had a bad day today i'm not feeling well today they won't really think about mental health because mental health is pretty serious in china so and also like it's kind of like stigma mm. in China, so we won't necessarily to relate it with mental health. If you're telling your parents like you had mental issue, they really they just thinking like you are getting so weak, so mentally weak. I do feel embarrassing in some certain degree, but not a lot. But when I actually feel depressed, I'm not. Sh- I wasn't sure I actually wanted to go to ask for help because when you try to get the help, you have to know where to go to get the help and who's the right person to get help. And isn't the person I trust him, I can talk to him and does it gonna like have the effect? Is it just wasting of time? More specifically, and, and part of this episode as well is it's mostly for, for instructors and education professionals, but it's for anybody who deals with mental health, and I think we can assume lots of people do, most people, almost everybody does uh, to some extent. Um, And part of, as we know, going through that process is hearing the stories of other people. So are you willing to share an experience that you had with mental health as an international student here in Canada? Uh, I have a story from the first day that I came here Mm -hmm. that uh, the teacher asked us to uh, introduce ourselves to our he divided us to five different groups and he asked us to introduce ourselves to each other and then i it's something really common in our culture that when we are introducing ourselves we say that how old we are mm-hmm. and then i introduced myself and then someone else introduced herself and i asked her that okay how old are you and then I saw that reaction on her face and other group members' faces that because they were from the same country. Right. So I felt really embarrassed. So definitely, I think something like this happened to happens to every single international student that puts him or her in this awkward situation. So, and after that, I think that these intercultural barriers wouldn't let them to 
take it a step further and then talk about especially mental health issues. So I I I said earlier when I uh, got here I couldn't speak English. I nearly can't understand people, mm-hmm. and the way I <laughs> manage my stress was just literally crying on my pillow every day. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so after I got in university, I was struggling doing assignment, but it was very good. I had a tutorial with Leo for several sessions. So my essay writing was totally fine. So that was kind of released my stress. But, but besides that, um, so as a new person to Canada and I was looking for job, I was uh, looking for part-time job. And I need to be more good at my time management. Like all of these things just making me like feel like I'm not good enough. So what did you do when you so, found yourself in, in that situation that it's hard to talk to people and you're becoming stressed and anxious? How did you resolve it? So um, I was just trying to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's pretty bad, but I don't know what else I can do. So I just ignore it. I was so stressed. I couldn't really function. I don't want to get up. I don't want to eat. Yeah, it was pretty bad. But like, it was like a few that kind of day. And I just stay at home, try to get rid of the depressed and try to like encourage myself, go back to school, go to those events. I just trying to ignore it. It's not a good way, but that's what I did. Okay. Yeah. Did you end up talking to anybody about it? No, really. No? To be honest, no, really, because I don't think it's a good way. Like, um, so even I have some friends in um, Canada, but sometimes it's very hard to talk ne- negative things. You don't want to, like, spread a negative around you. You want to show your positivity. But when you're so stressed, you couldn't do that. You just, you only can, like, feel that like a long so um going through my main program at college uh but also in my language school because this has been a an ongoing problem as we know um is the problem in venezuela the political problem social crisis and economic crisis um i remember um one time i was during class in french school and I was following a big protest that was going on in Venezuela. This was back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a youth protest. And we all knew that it was going to end up pretty bad. I was following the protest during class, things that I shouldn't have shouldn't have done, but I did. And I got pretty upset when I looked at the news and I saw that a student was, uh, was in the protest. I immediately left the classroom. My teacher at the moment, uh, she she was French. She was amazing. She went right behind me, and she was she knew what I was doing. Like she knew the pro, like what was going on in Venezuela and everything. And she knew that something had happened. And right. she sat down with me, and uh, she asked me about it. She listened to me. She accompanied me. She she shared couple of tears and um, shared my frustration and I knew that she was taking a couple of minutes out of class but she did it because I was one of her students and I really appreciate it. Also during college uh, I had kind of 
not the same situation, but it was the same um, root of the problem. It was the Venezuelan protests and mm-hmm. and the political and social climate. And um, I just found myself unable to study. I just couldn't focus. I just couldn't read, couldn't go to class and put my head on it. Um, I used to take my laptop to class and I was just looking at the news while I was in class. <laughs> I just said, my pro my program is what is going to give me the future here in Canada. And I have to focus on counseling. I have to look for help. It wasn't enough to go home and talk to the family. It was just just like feeding the monster in a way. Uh, when you dealt with your stress, anxiety, feelings, did you use the university services or did you just talk with your teacher talk with friends and work your way through it how did you uh deal with or cope with what you were feeling i kind of needed an outside perspective and i have to say that it took me a couple of intents to go to the office of mental health and ask for an appointment mm-hmm. um i kind of walked in front of it a couple of times and um and i like saw brochures of teen suicide, of teenage pregnancy. What were your What were your hesitations of going inside, and how many times did you approach it before you made an appointment? So I approached it three times, mm-hmm. and um, my biggest hesitation was my problem's not that big. Mm. I so saw minimizing, of, right? Yeah, just minimizing. It. Um, after that, I I thought my classmates are going to look at me weird if I go into the office because it's pretty apparent, right? It's the Office of Mental Health. Um, But I just couldn't take it anymore and I just went in, I made an appointment and I'm very glad I did. I still remember some things that that this person told me, this social worker helped me with and it still helps me nowadays when I'm out of school already, I'm working and I still think about what we talked about in like two to three sessions in that that office. So, yeah, that that was that was my experience. Uh, honestly, no, uh, I have no idea why didn't I why I didn't try that. But yeah, I I think it was because after that I talked with my teacher. Uh, my problem solved mm-hmm. kind of so I just didn't see any need to follow up are you comfortable talking about it in English and in Chinese or you prefer it in Chinese to be honest with you, I prefer in English because when you speak in your first language it's more um, like more emotion connect with mental health when you talk when I talk in English it's more like very distant things I just like hmm. describe the things there's no much like the stigma connection so as you said of course there's going to be a language barrier between um, uh, I don't know if as it called if is you psychologist or whatever I don't know mm-hmm. there is definitely going to be a language barrier between us and then yeah I I would rather to talk with someone who I know when Bryson introduced us the keep me safe app I tried to use that app mm-hmm. but 
the thing is that they didn't have any uh, Farsi speaking mentors in that program. So that's what I, why I just gave up using that app. And okay. When you say I tried thought, to use it, did you ever talk to somebody or you just didn't use it when you found no, out I, they didn't I have checked, Farsi? I checked the menu and I realized that there's no Farsi languages. Do you think international students would be comfortable using an app like that if their own language was a, mm. an option? So I think I had like 200 students, friends from China, and Mandarin is one of the languages that is available on Keep Me Safe app. Okay. But I think out of that 200 friends, I think two or three people just use that app. A very low number. Yes. Students are more likely to speak with the teachers or professors rather than someone from outside of the school. After you decided not to use Keep Me Safe, what did you do? I, for the first couple of days, sorry, I just decided to... Uh, I said, okay, I'm not going to talk regarding this problem with anyone. And then I couldn't resist anymore, so... I just felt that okay, I have to speak someone with someone, and then it was one of my peer supporters, if I'm not mistaken. A peer supporter is a university student position within Ryerson to help guide and give advice to new students at the university, specifically in the ESL Foundation program. Who came to me and then asked me? He said, "Okay, recently I feel that you're not okay. You're not feeling good, so." Is there anything that I can help you with, or is there anything that you want to speak about? You wanna do? You wanna have a coffee or something? Mm, that's and, great. Yeah. First, I said no. I'm fine. I just need to be alone for a short time, and then I think it was ten minutes after that that I said, "Hey, do you have time?" mental health something in your experience that students talk to each other about? Um, I think people mostly just talking about like I feel stressed lately and I feel bad because I couldn't do a job well but they not really saying they have mental health problem and even some students say I think his or her friend doesn't really think that's serious maybe the person just being dramatic, that's my opinion, yeah. I don't mm-hmm. think people really like think it's a problem. Okay. Unless you're showing very like a very serious sign, like you're getting so sick. Right. Yeah. Do, in your estimation, do students know about and are aware of how Ryerson's mental health services work? Mm, as what I know, I don't... I think most people don't know. Okay, why do you say that? Yeah, because I did uh, research on my communication course, which is about mental health resource on campus. And I interviewed uh, a group of people, including international students and local students. Most of them don't really aware of school. Like they know school has no resource, but they don't have what exactly that is. And then you also have the benefit of being able to speak about 
uh, a language school experiences um, in Canada as well, where uh, traditionally, and for obvious reasons, mental health departments don't necessarily exist. These mostly exist in colleges, universities, of course. Um, what do you think, I, I don't know if advice is the right word, but from a student perspective, from a management perspective, teacher perspective, what can language schools do better to help their students? If there isn't a department, and we'll set aside whether or not the departments are approachable or not just for now, but if a department doesn't exist internally in a school like a language school, what can those schools still do to be proactive in offering assistance to those who need it? Sure. Um, so this is something that I discovered long after graduation. Um, there's communities that are eager to help anybody. You don't need any ID. You don't need anything. It's totally anonymous. You just go, you wait for a social worker to meet you, and they can help you. Like, it wouldn't be something like having your own psychologist, because it would be a different person, maybe, every time you go in. That's the, the case most of the time. Mm, right. But um, the service is there. And even if language schools don't have the service in-house, they can alert people about the services outside of the school. Is this something, is mental health something that was done or talked about in orientation? Um, and is it something that you feel comfortable talking about with your friends, with your peers at school? Or is it something that is kind of, not just you, but with other students that's not talked about? Uh, I mean, no one has talked to me about the mental health, especially in orientation week or during orientation or, I mean, by saying that, I mean no one from the student uh, university staff mm-hmm. had talked with me about the mental health issues or the things or issues that I may face during my study. I think it's one of the real important factors that should be addressed, especially in orientation weeks, at least, that we have at, here at Rice and other universities. I don't know why, but unfortunately, you know, that this year I'm working as a peer supporter as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I had to attend uh, two days of orientation for the peer supporters here at Ryerson. I think too many different things. They spoke about too many different things and subjects. But unfortunately, they, I think, forgot to speak about mental health issues or at least the services that we have here at Ryerson, uh, they didn't mention anything about it. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Whether you're a student, teacher, education professional, or anyone experiencing feelings related to mental distress, don't hesitate to seek the help you need there are services available to support you. If you're in the Toronto area, 211 Ontario is a great resource. They have information about all sorts of counseling and support group options, such as addiction, child, youth, and adult mental health, and in-person crisis centers. 211 also has live chat and text options on their website, so they can be contacted at any time. Head to 211toronto.ca for more information. That's number 211 T O 
R-O-N-T-O dot C-A. You can also visit number 211.ca for information on other provinces offering this service. It's one of the many available mental health tools in Canada. Again, that's 211.ca. Remember, if you feel anxious, depressed, or alone, you are not alone, and there's always someone who will listen. Help us continue the dialogue and end the stigma, not only on World Mental Health Awareness Day, but every day. Well, my role is a little bit unique. Uh, it straddles two departments, kind of three at Ryerson. This so is Natalie Roach, the mental health coordinator for Toronto's Ryerson University. She works at an institutional and community level to bring dialogue and programs of change to those who need it. Mine is more, um, how do we as an institution have programs, policies, initiatives that address mental health and well-being at more of a kind of community and um, institutional level? So Mm -hmm. that role was created in September 2015, and uh, that's how long I've been in this role. Natalie talked to us about services inside and outside of post-secondary institutions available to students, stigma, signs of mental health, what teachers can, should, or should not do, and much more. And it is one that straddles student well-being as well as workplace well-being services. And I have a what's called a dotted line to the Office of the Vice President, Equity and Community Inclusion. And my role is one that sits at an institutional level with mental health. And I mean, there are various studies about this and and some, and you can maybe tell us if some of the statistics are accurate or not. Um, But the articles that point to increases in mental health cases in post-secondary education, some say three to 4% per year. Um, Do you you think that there really is a rise in the number of cases or that just now we're more aware and more cognizant of students needing help and we're, we're, we're noticing more, more cases than we did in the past? I think that it's both things together. I think that, um, I don't think that we are seeing an increased level of mental health. I think that what we are probably seeing is a um, result of more awareness happening at an earlier age. So students are coming out of the high school system and they're more familiar with disclosing and receiving help and accommodations mm. for um, mental health related accommodations. So you're going to see that increase as well happening in the post-secondary sector as well. I received these accommodations in high school and now I'm expecting to receive them as well at the post-secondary level. Okay. So yes, and those increases are obviously going to carry through, so to speak. What's interesting too, I think, is considering that what people conceptualize as getting help or or conceptualize as being healing may not be counseling, right? Like Mm -hmm. for them, it might be a different avenue. It might be visiting one of the equity service centers and finding healing through advocacy and, you know, becoming comfortable with their gender identity. And that was something that was healing for them. So I think that in various ways, I think that students are becoming much better at help-seeking behavior. That is something that I think has really increased in the past maybe 10 years. So I don't know as if it's um, necessarily an increase. There's obviously you can say an increase in terms of pressure and demands and um, rapidness of information, change in the labor force, those kinds of things. But I do think that 
we're seeing the result of a lot of awareness campaigns having an effect. Is the stigma, has the, does that mean then as a follow-up, does the stigma, do you think the stigma has been reduced if kids are being, or, or students are being exposed to it at an earlier age, high school, even elementary perhaps, and being taught that asking questions and talking about it is okay, that when they get to the university level, and in many cases probably, you know, the parental cushion is, is removed, that they're able to talk about it independently? You know, I think that on a broad systemic level, stigma is such a stigma is such an interesting uh, term mm-hmm. because I think that at a broad systemic kind of public facing level, I think that stigma we've made big advances in terms of what you see visibly. A lot of people will say, well, look at Bell, let's talk, look at the CAMH campaign, look at what you see visibly. And that's certainly not something that you would have seen decades ago. But I still believe that when it comes down to stigma, when you're talking about individual people, it comes down to who do they feel safe and comfortable disclosing to and talking about. And that really depends on how people have chosen to communicate um, about those issues themselves. So I think that when you look at individual students, the stigma they feel might be one way with a particular even professor and it might be a different way with a different TA. Like Mm -hmm. I might not feel stigmatized by this TA, which is why I feel comfortable disclosing to them. But with this one particular professor, I don't know. It's not that necessarily I feel stigmatized by them, but something about the way they're communicating or the way they are uh, comporting themselves is activating my own self-stigma that I should not be asking for help. I don't know as if society, I think societal stigma, we've moved a long way, but I do think that self-stigma is still a really big thing. And that is what really can prevent people from asking for help a lot still, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great answer. Um, and obviously this, there's lots of, to go into the, the mental health discussion and there's lots of perspectives we're, we're focusing on from the teaching perspective, but obviously from the student perspective, there's lots of, as you say, lots to be considered as well. Given that then, and we'll get into some specifics here in a second, but from the teaching perspective, in terms of teachers or instructors referring, getting involved, not getting involved, what is it worth differentiating between mental health in terms of illness and learning disabilities versus stress and pressure that comes with academic and social life? It's a really good question. Um, I think that it's, there's been... Um, There's been, I know, some talk lately at the high school level about focusing a little bit more on um, resiliency and really being careful about not using clinical language around the normative experience of an academic course of study that is going to have stressful elements to it. So... An academic course of study is, it is pressurized, it is difficult, it is challenging, it is going to have times where you feel stretched and that you feel um, pushed, pushed, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are experiencing clinical depression, that you are experiencing clinical levels of anxiety. So that's a very interesting question. And I think that as a teacher, I don't know as if a teacher needs to worry about discerning whether or not a student is experiencing normative versus non-normative stress levels. 
as much as they need to make sure that they let their students know that they are open should their students feel that they are not able to cope Mm -hmm. and setting that tone early on in the classroom. Um, So, you know, kind of setting up for students, um, you know, school is stressful. An academic course of study is a stressful experience. It is going to be difficult. It is going to be challenging. That is, that is inherent in this. You are resilient students. You wouldn't have gotten here without this. Um, however, if you feel that it is going beyond what is normal and beyond what is manageable and beyond what you were able to cope with, I really do hope that you will approach me. I think that that's more where teachers can come in and, and really kind of be um, a positive message um, in terms of differentiating. Great, and then that's destigmatizing as well. Um, yeah, being, you know, I think that's that's a great that's a great piece of advice. In that case, let's extend that analogy a little bit further. If, as a teacher, I do have a student after that, you know, um, conversation or a discussion, class discussion, a few weeks later or whatever, a student does approach me and say that I'm having these feelings um what is my role or what how should i navigate that as the instructor in that case well i think the first thing you want to do is it sounds like you're talking to me about a case where you're not hearing anything about a student not not wanting to end their life or like this is a critical level so this this yeah this doesn't sound like it's at that at that stage um because that's a, a different protocol. If a student is kind of saying, hey, like I, I need some extra support here from what you're saying, I think the role of the teacher is to the best of their ability to, to try to be informed about what the resources are. So whatever their setting is, so whether they're internal, whether they're external, and in most cases, I mean, at a situation like where I am at Ryerson, we're lucky enough that a lot of them are internal, but that's not the case for a lot of people. Um, but if they are you know, able to just be aware of what are the resources that are available for the population of students or the demographic, sorry, demographic of students that I teach, should they be experiencing this? Because it always helps to be prepared for if that might happen and passing those along to the student. And then maybe also, I think, being ready with certain questions of networks that the student might have available to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do you have a faith community that you have here that you could access? You know, there might be an imam or a faith community leader that they could approach for support. Um, They may or may not have family there. Um, They may or may not have a family doctor that they could approach, but just being prepared with certain questions that they could answer to help the student set up a support network um, that is going to get them the help that they need. And I think that for the, t- for the teacher in that position to recognize, I am here to help this student set up a network and set up a, a path to healing, basically, mm-hmm. while recognizing I am not that person. I am a conduit for them because I think that that can be the really difficult place that teachers can find themselves in is I want to be that, not that they want to be that person, it's out of a good place. Their heart is in the right place, but um, they can sometimes get drawn out of their lane and that can be a scary place for a teacher to be in. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's also great advice because I mean, as teachers, and this might be a generalization, but we're always in a position where we want to help our students and want to have the answers. And obviously, in these cases, we're self-aware enough, hopefully, that we don't have 
the answer, and there isn't an answer, obviously, either. Uh, and we're not, you know, speaking for myself, not diagnosing anything. I'm not trained to do that. I don't know how to do that. So knowing where to refer, even if to refer, mm-hmm. or just if the student wants you to listen, perhaps, as well. Knowing, you know, going through that process. But yeah, in, in whatever school you would teach in, you know, knowing what the processes are and, and referring them that way. brings up another a good question. I think in a lot of schools that aren't structured like universities, private schools, etc., who may not have internal mental health um, help available, uh, is referring externally advised? and Or is it just going back to what you said, kind of helping them set up their own network? Yeah, but I mean, it's a, it's a difficult question. It's a, like, I to be honest with you, that was the question that actually one of the questions that you posed that I thought the longest about because, <laughs> and I, I think that especially today, because like I have a personal, I guess, in some sense it's wonderful, but I have a personal kind of, there's a lot of capitalizing now on mental health. There's a lot of companies that are offering services for mental health. Um, you see a lot of, of um, uh, accessible therapy options being offered at low cost. Mm-hmm. And in some sense, that's wonderful. Um, I think, but I think it's also difficult because you don't necessarily know what are the best services to refer people to, like what's going to be the most helpful. So I think that, um, I definitely have no idea. Like, I don't even know what in I wouldn't even know one to be honest. So that, yeah, that would be very difficult. Right. And I think that maybe in that case, I don't know as if I want to say like, no, don't refer someone, but I think that what I would want to do is if someone, if a teacher were to find themselves in a place where, wow, I have not yet confronted this before, I would want to say to the student, listen, I'd like to do some investigating about some resources for you and get back to you. Mm -hmm. And then I'd want to get in touch with um, some kind of community agency that would be able to at least direct me a little bit better. Like if it's a young woman, maybe getting in touch with the YWCA of Toronto, getting in touch with newcomer services to Toronto, if it is an international student, um, getting in touch with, you know, if it's a racialized person, like women's health and women's hands or across boundaries, like getting in touch with a reputable community agency that could refer you to like reputable places in the community where they could get help. Um, and if the person does have a family doctor to refer them to their family doctor as like, that is going to be a a good first step to get help. Um, I just, that would, I'm always in favor of, of linking someone up if, if possible with a person, as opposed to you should sign up for talk space, which is not necessarily bad, but you also, it's, it's also just that you don't necessarily know the person's financial situation. Um, I think that Talkspace could be a great tool. That's just one example of like a, you know, a, um, an accessible therapy option. Um, but I, I think that I would first want to say to the student, let me try to get back to you about some resources. And even if you can find out about wait times, but uh, just do a little bit of investigating, I think. And listen, like there's, it's, I don't think that it should be, um, should be dismissed that sometimes someone does just need a listening ear and you can feel that that person feels strengthened and able to go on and has developed even just enough resilience and like, wow, like that was really helpful. And I feel like, thank you. But if you can tell that that person there's sometimes where a student might just need like a, a more 
a little bit more support to get their own support, if that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. And um, I think that there's no kind of prescriptive formula for that. It's, it's something that you can tell from the individual student. And um, I think that that would probably be a case where you probably would want to, without disclosing tons of details, but maybe bring in your supervisor about, um, is this something that we've encountered before? Is there uh, particular places that we do like to refer? Um, are we, do we have anyone that we can reach out to our preferred referral source? Uh, like what do we do in cases where there isn't um, uh, a family doctor? Like, it, like what kinds of support can we offer? But making sure that as a teacher, you have some kind of support so that you're not operating alone. And, you know, you might be getting input, you might be able to find out information that you didn't realize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's always the interesting case, right, where students, and not just about mental health, about anything, usually I find, at least in, in second language classrooms or ESL classrooms, they're much more comfortable conveying or, or communicating sometimes very private elements of their life. Um, even just for practice or just they feel comfortable with their instructor. Um, so in, in terms of mental health and from a teaching perspective, and you can refer to Ryerson policy or just general advice that you have, where is that line or that boundary between trying to be helpful versus kind of not prying, but sometimes conveying or communicating to somebody else private information? So again, not necessarily in critical cases, but in if there is an average situation, Let's use that word just for lack of a better term, but where am I allowed to relay information a student gave me regarding their mental health? Um, is there a, are there privacy policies in place? What am I allowed to tell somebody else in those cases? The only reason I ask is a lot of students will say, hey, I, I want to talk to you, but please don't tell anybody because this. And if I'm doing, and again, we're not doctors, but doing it, that maybe the student needs to talk to somebody who's not me because... I can't um, help them here. And maybe by help, by talking to them, I might actually make things worse. I don't really know what to do. I think I should suggest that they be referred or I'm going to ask somebody for advice. Where, what, what information can I tell somebody else? That's a really, really great question. I think that you framed it really well. It's that you, you share as much information as you need to get the, to, to ensure that they're going to get support. So you are disclosing to the level of ensuring that they're going to get adequate care. So I can share an example from my very recent history. A student reached out to me and she was, uh, she's a, a master's student. She's really struggling. She thinks she needs to take a leave of absence. She disclosed during that conversation with me some very personal details about what's going on in her family situation. And um, I was saying to her, I, I really think that you need to get in touch with the counseling center. What I would like to do is give them a call because I have a relationship with them and let them know kind of that you're going to be calling in a little bit of background on your situation. Is that okay with you? Because I want to make sure that you get the support that you need. And she said, yeah, that's okay. I'm not positive. I'm going to reach out. And I said, okay, I really think that you would benefit from it. I'm going to make that call. And I'm also going to follow up with you in a few days. Is okay. that okay? And what I shared on that message wasn't her mom did this and then her mom did this and then her mom did this. It was just, she's going through a very difficult family transition right now. She disclosed those details to me. I think that she could benefit from this. So it's 
making sure that there's enough information that they can a identify who this student is based on the message because they get a lot of phone calls Mm -hmm. b have enough a little bit of information about kind of the level of criticalness basically for lack very lack of proper english way of saying it but um and then you know I also like to always, this is not related to what you said, but I always like to say to the student, like, can I follow up, like a, like a question to follow up. But I think in terms of disclosure, a lot of people have that. And my kind of go-to is safety trumps privacy, like okay. always. So I think that in terms of you can disclose enough information to get them the support that they need. Okay. Let's jump then into the, into some critical cases. And I think we know what those might be. Um, our role then changes, right, as a teacher. So if we are, if a student does disclose something that we would characterize as critical, uh, at least in the university or at least in your context in Ryerson, what should I do as a, as a Ryerson instructor in those cases? In those cases, again, like I know that I am repeating myself here, safety trumps privacy. So if a student, um, like if you're external to Ryerson, if you're a teacher who's external to Ryerson, I would say as much as you um if the student is off-site and you're not in touch with them and this happens over email and a student were to indicate to, to you that they're they wanting to end their life, try to get in touch with them before you get in touch with emergency services. But if not, you just get in touch with emergency services and then you can send an email after the fact and just say, I'm really highly concerned for you and I want to make sure that you're safe. So I, I got in touch with emergency services just to make sure that you're safe and sound, whatever whatever language works for you. If the person is with you um, and you're not a Ryerson instructor uh, or you're not a Ryerson teacher, I would, again, just get and say to the person, listen, I want to either go with you to the emergency room or I want to sit with you while we call 911 together. I'm going to sit with you until they get here. I'm really highly concerned for your safety. You're telling me some things that are really concerning and I just, I really care about you and I want to make sure that you're safe. And like they might say, no, 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 it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. But like safety trumps privacy. And sometimes like it's just, it's better to be safe than sorry in those cases. Mm-hmm. And internal to Ryerson, the same policy would apply after hours, what I just said. But in, if it's if it's within um, hours, you can always call the counseling center and say, um, I have a student here. I'm concerned about their safety. I'm either going to walk over with them Um uh, or, and you would walk over with them or, and you can do that to the medical center as well. Great. Yeah. I think, and it, you know, it's kind of sounds weird to say, but I think the extreme cases are always seemingly maybe easier to navigate because they're extreme and yeah. we don't really have another option other than to take action immediately versus, you know, students who, uh, you know, nothing critical, but are, might be struggling, might not be struggling. What do we do? I had a student last year who I suspected of being uh, autistic and I didn't know what to do, to be honest. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a language barrier as well. Um, and it, it wasn't anything critical, but it was clearly that he was very smart, but struggling academically in the class, nothing that's his fault. And I, you know, I talked to some people and I got some advice and we eventually got him some help. Um, but it took a while and I didn't really know how to handle the situation. So I think those ones as teachers are more difficult because it's not critical, it's not immediate. We yeah. think something's going on and we're not really sure what to do. This is, we're going to take a little bit of a turn here, but this applies more so for student, you know, ESL programs and students whose language is not 
you know, English as a first language. And there's lots of things when they move to Toronto or Canada or any country that's not theirs. There's culture shock and there's natural stresses that happen there. Um, you know, we're, we, Ryerson's very good about giving seminars and, and workshops for us in terms of noticing signs of stress, anxiety, potential mental health. And, but at the same time, a lot of these signs are, at least in my opinion, quite general or could apply to lots of different things. Is there any advice you have for teachers about noticing signs? I mean, we were, you know, off the top of my head, some of them, you know, mood swings, uh, consistent absences, uh, high, drop in hygiene, these types of things, which could be a sign of distress, but also could not be at the same time. So is yeah. there any, um, f- we take that a step further, any, any further advice that you have for us in terms of noticing those types of signs in our classrooms? I think that when I think about the things that I have heard when I've been delivering those same workshops for teachers has been, when I think about the things that are specific to teachers, it tends to come out electronically. So those might be the markers that are specific to teachers. And what I mean by that is, what is the timestamp on the email that the student is sending you? It doesn't mean if a student is staying up late at night, oh, they must have a mental health issue. But are you getting three emails in a row sent at 3.30 in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning on a consistent basis? Like what's happening with that student's sleep pattern? And are they kind of erratic? Like, are Mm. they not really like, are they not really coherent in their thinking? Are they not really appropriate emails to be sending to their professor? Do they speak of someone who might not have a support network such that they're reaching out to their teacher or their TA and speaking this way to them? Like, that is something that I've heard in workshops. Like, this is not an email that you should be sending your teacher or a very, very, very inappropriate reaction to a grade. That's another really big one. Like okay. a, a very extreme reaction to what is not necessarily that bad a grade. Like one teacher that I had ended up actually having to call emergency services because the student said, I'm going to, I'm, they indicate they're going to end their life because of a grade they received. And it was a low B. Oh, wow. That is an incredibly extreme reaction. So like, these are the types of things that I find that, that teachers are seeing. Another one too is things that embedded in assignments, like just assignments veering way off track, like personal writing essays. It's like, oh, we want you to write a reflection piece. And halfway through this reflection piece, I've heard two actually teaching assistants tell me this. They were reading halfway through this reflection pieces. And these are in two completely separate departments. And it's like very disturbing, like very disturbing, like what started to come out on paper to the point where like it could have been a sign of like early psychosis. Mm -hmm. So those might be the types of things that might be specific to what teachers would see that you're really only going to see in the context of teaching, a teaching relationship. Okay. No, and that's, I think that's a really good example because I've, I've seen that. I think most teachers would have seen something disturbing in writing what reaction is uh, appropriate thereafter. So I'm I'm reading, or if let's say I'm that teacher, I'm reading a, a reflective piece or any piece of writing, and somewhere in there there's a a disturbing paragraph or, or or something about inflicting pain or just a dark thought or something that's disturbing. I say, oh no, okay, so this student mm-hmm. needs help. What does Andrew do at that point? 
Well, I can say I thought that the I thought the TA in this case had a great reaction. He was newer, um, and he he approached his professor and and because and I think that in that case there's precedence and that there's an understanding that whatever work is shared with the TA is shared with the professor as well. So it's not it's not a you know necessarily a privacy issue. So he's he approached his professor and said I, I'm really disturbed by this passage and shared it with the professor and decided to um, approach the student privately, individually, and said, hey, I just wanted to speak with you about your piece. Like I was, I was concerned by the, the, um, the middle passage and that you went pretty far off course. And I just wanted to check in and see like, are you okay? And like, there's resources here. And I think the student did end up getting linked up with resources and said okay. like, I've, I, you know, I've been, was going through a really dark time when I wrote that. I do feel a bit better now, but maybe I should reach out to someone. And I think that like, so the point isn't necessarily where the student went. Like I am really hoping the student went and got support, obviously, but I think that the TA not ignoring that, reaching out and getting support for himself saying, Hey, like just wanting to, you know, get another pair of eyes on this and getting some support support here and then reaching out to the student. I thought that was a great way to handle it. Is that an appropriate, that's great. Is that the professor in that case, is that an appropriate, how would we approach the conversation with the student? Are we going to be just forthright about it and say, Hey, I read this. I thought it was a bit uh, off for your, for you. Are you okay? Or do we need to be more indirect and more discreet about it? I think that it might depend at that point. Like it depends that's one where it's probably going to be dictated by the relationship you have with the student. Like, is it paper one, you don't have a relationship with the student, then it might be an email to the student. Hey, I was hoping I could speak with you after class, like something a little bit more discreet or whatever, or do you have a relationship with the student such as you can just kind of shoulder tap them next time you see them and say, Hey, can I talk with you for a minute? But I think that in that case, I mean, my my personal recommendation would be to find a way to speak with them discreetly. Um, and if you can't, like if you've stopped seeing them, um, to send an email um, saying, I would like to see you. And then if you don't hear back from that email, just um, at the very least sending, I was really concerned and I here are some resources for you. I really hope that you utilize them and please do come by and see me. Great. So just, doing the best that you can to reach out and see the student. If you don't hear from them, then sending resources. Following up and, and just yeah. checking and making, and le- again, letting them know that we're there in whatever yeah. capacity that, that they need. Obviously, I guess the, the end story of this is we can't force students to get help. And if they say there's nothing wrong, we can't pry, we can't push it. But letting them know that the resources are available seems to be the, the consistent philosophy here. And that you're available, mm-hmm. yeah, if they want to approach you. The other or the last thing that I wanted to touch on is the kind of the opposite. So we, we talked about, you know, a great thing that the stigma or whatever word you want to use is, is lowering and students are being more autonomous in seeking help. Um, but the opposite part is back into the classroom itself. And again, our context is ESL, so the classrooms are much smaller. They're not hundreds of students in a lecture or something. But what advice might you have for teachers how to integrate those students that you know have mental health issues in whatever capacity that means, um, into the classroom to foster cooperative learning. I think that in most cases, maybe, and I don't want to, I don't, I certainly don't want to stereotype, but I think maybe especially so in an ESL type setting, 
students are really highly motivated to learn and want to be there, like mm-hmm. want to be part of the classroom. And the typically like students with mental health challenges, like want to be part of the classroom. And usually their being there is a sign that they're able to be there and they're able to cope. And there might not need to be any any accommodations that would be noticeable to others. So what might be helpful in those cases would be with those students outside of a classroom setting, saying to them, if you need to take a break from class, like if you need to step out for a minute, just take care of yourself and, and, and do that. Like, you don't need to let me know where you're going. Like if you need to go and listen to your, listen to music for a little bit and then come back. Like if you need to take a break, like, or you're having trouble focusing and come back. Like we are, I think that what is so important, like let's say the student is returning after an absence, like after they've been missing classes, Mm -hmm. what is so, so, so important is to make that student feel welcome. Like we are glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're back everyone's glad you're back and we want to make sure that we do what we can to make sure that you stay great i think that that's probably the best that makes a lot of sense i think that's that's a good way to tackle it um and i'll leave you with with this one this is this area especially with post-secondary education has come a long way and as you've mentioned in high schools as well uh, in terms of providing services providing help providing aid providing even just ears for students to listen to, to students who need to talk um, but nothing's perfect. So what improvements would you like to see in terms of how this is dealt with, uh, or, or not dealt with, but navigated uh, in post-secondary, in any type of institution? What what improvements do we still need to see in terms of, uh, of mental health? Oh, wow. That's a really, really good question. Um, I think that my dream would be that all students were assigned a mentor for their entire first year. Mm all students would have a mentor and that that's that mentor would ideally be like a staff member like so that that staff member then would be required to like know the services in and out like be familiar with you know what the issues are that students are facing um i just think that so much of this comes from this feeling of having to navigate so much on your own it's such a decentralized environment and I would love to see just required mentors that would I think that that could be one one way of tackling it and in terms of outside the outside the university sector more like much more funding in community-based mental health programming because I know that we were talking earlier about where do you refer when it's external? It's like you refer, but the thing is there are such long wait lists Mm -hmm. and you don't want to be referring people to the emergency room. You don't want to be hoping it's an emergency situation. Right. And I just really think that we could do so much more if, if you could refer someone to a community-based counselor and it wasn't like a six month long wait list, you know? So those would be some of the things I would like to see. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. This is Leo from Learn New English, and I have a very important message for all of you. As a teacher, I've had students approach me with questions about mental health 
and most of the time I wasn't sure of how I should answer or even handle the situation. In fact, this is true of teachers and education professionals everywhere. It's really important for all of us, teachers, students, administration, community members, everyone, to be up to date on what our own institutions offer in terms of mental health assistance and what external options do exist. The more information we have, the more likely we are to make referrals to the appropriate locations and for those individuals to have success. Please check out our blog post for this episode on our website for links and descriptions of recommended options. Help us continue the dialogue and end the stigma, not only on World Mental Health Awareness Day, but every single day. So saving, we started saving tag uh, as a personal need. That's the voice of Sakina Mihar, one of the four co-founders of digital platform Savintech, an app designed to help newcomers who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. In segment three, Sakina joins us to discuss life with PTSD, transitioning to Canada as a newcomer, why mental health services must have multilingual options, and their inspiration for developing Saving Tech in the first place. Um, we are four co-founders. We are all immigrants to Canada, and all of us have the lived experience of PTSD. Years ago, uh, I had a brain problem during a concert. I started to be scared of feeling this pain at any time. I was afraid to come back to work, being outside or even by myself. I kept my main door open just in case something could happen during my sleep and I didn't talk to my friends and family about it and finally kept this anxiety for myself. I'm an immigrant from a country of war. When I moved to Canada, I remember very clearly the first time in my neighborhood I heard sirens. I froze. My heart started beating so fast. I felt this immense dread come over me and I thought I was in a situation at war. I couldn't move and I couldn't breathe. This is what a panic attack looks like for me and these are the effects of PTSD. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, a lot of people don't know what PTSD is. Um, so once we came to Canada as immigrants, we started having um, I, panic attacks or we would feel anxiety around things that are known as triggers. Um, and we, like all of us, the four of us, we didn't know what it meant uh, until we got actually got help and we were identified with PTSD. Um, so we actually met uh, at a hackathon where we were pitching for ideas to uh, have startups. And I pitched my idea for a mental health app. And because my other co-founders have lived experience, we connected over the hackathon and that's how we started our journey. Wow, that's fascinating. So you all met uh, there and so you had no idea that each other had ex gone through that experience and you just kind of came together and formed this uh, all as a partnership? Exactly and it, it has been truly serendipitous. Uh, we did not know each other. We work really well together um, and also because 
all of us are immigrants, we have this instantaneous connection because English is not our first language. So sometimes we struggle to communicate when we like, you know, I get you, I get you. Let's <laughs> slow, let's be patient. Let's, you know, so we're, we really, really work well together. Just out of curiosity, what are the first languages of the co-founders? It's Mandarin, French, and for me, it's Tamil. As teachers, or at least in my experience, uh, all the services that we've been promoted to uh, refer students to are all English services. So was there not or is there not something out there uh, that helps students in their mother tongues? And is this why you kind of started to promote this type of service? Exactly. Um, there are lots of PDSD apps out there, uh, in, specifically in the U.S. market and globally, but they're all in English, mostly in English. There are a few Arabic um, apps available uh, that is available in the U.S., uh, but not necessarily uh, in the languages that we speak um, in Toronto as a majority. So we when we were brainstorming our ideas, we the basic features obviously has to be developed in English, but we also realized when we were so developing it is, you know, there's a big difference when you hear, for example, so we have three main features. Let me talk about the three main features. Sure. First is we want to provide help when somebody's having a panic attack. And a panic attack is um, when you something triggers you that trigger brings back bad memories of trauma um, and your body has a physical reaction where your heart starts beating really fast. You have the sensation that you can't breathe. You actually think you're dying. Um, and the only way to stop that is to tell yourself that you're not dying, you're okay in this instant and have to do deep breathing. So there is a big difference if English is not your first language to hear this in English versus your own language, your mother tongue or your first language. Um, so if you, there is a comfort in hearing these instructions or these affirmations or these breathing exercises in your first language, which really helps you calm down because a panic attack is immediate reaction. And for the brain to process instructions in English and then have, you know, follow those instructions doesn't work as well as when you hear it in your first language. So that's why for us, for me personally, uh, I often, I used to get a lot of panic attacks um, in subways. Subways is a big, a difficult space mm -hmm. to go into uh, because I come from a country of war. I've ex been exposed to really bad things at war. So I'm really, um, my triggers are like the subway. My triggers are sirens. My triggers are like aircrafts that fly. Um, mm -hmm. So I I needed to learn how to say that I'm okay at this moment, that I'm not in danger. And it, and that deep breathing uh, that I learned through my therapist, I wanted to make this accessible to folks who don't have this 
as an um, and and because it's an online platform, um, they can access it wherever they are. The struggle with PTSD is people don't know they have PTSD. Right. Uh, right. I didn't know I had PTSD when I came here. Um, I did not know, my other co-founders did not know what they were experiencing was called a panic attack, for example. Um, it also depends on your status as an immigrant in Canada, uh, your access, access to healthcare. So if you are a refugee, there is this in-between period where you don't have your OHIP uh, car to access healthcare, or if you do access healthcare, or most new immigrants and uh, or newcomers or refugees, the focus is on settlement-based services. So mm-hmm. how do they live? How do they, you know, learn English? Um, where are they going to work? And it's less on mental health. It's getting better. Uh, CAMH has programs that teach therapists to look out for PTSD, they, especially within the, the refugee population that's being settled, um, but it's not as much. Okay. Is it more common in, in your experience to have for immigrants in any country to, is there a higher rate of PTSD among immigrants than non-immigrants? Actually, Canada is very surprisingly um, one of the there was a study done um more than 10 percent canadians have PTSD. Mm. wow so in the west uh we are either at number one or number two for PTSD. okay um, with ptsd so they didn't exactly tell the reason is it because we have larger immigration population immigrant population um we don't know but that's a pretty large number. It's a large number. That's that's. Does the study go into more detail? Do because you said that most people, or I don't know if most people, but a lot of people don't know that they have PTSD. Of that percentage, do we know? Do all those people are those the ones that know they have it? Are there more that maybe don't know they have it? Or exactly. Yeah, so there could yeah, be. It that, could be. It's realistically, it's a higher number. Realistically, it's a very higher number, and PTSD is. Uh, not not um, specific to immigrants or refugees, right? It's anybody who has gone through trauma. Of course. The you know, if you were in a car accident, for example, um, you're scared of getting into a car, or you're always looking at the back. Um, so, like, if you have gone through trauma, then experiencing or reliving that trauma or a trigger that makes you think you're in the trauma, you know, help triggers you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because there's lots of different definitions of what P- PTSD actually is, but there's a lot of consistency in those definitions, right? So, the, for example, the American Psychiatric Association uses the word trauma. They also say that in, in the U.S., for example, approximately 3.5% of U.S. adults have it, and 1 in 11 people will be diagnosed with it. But based on what you've said, being diagnosed... It's only the people who then know that they have it. So the number is probably or very likely a lot higher, right? Mm-hmm. And then based on trauma, but trauma could be something from very dramatic, like war, or sexual assaults. It could also be from not that car accidents are 
not dramatic, but maybe less so than those examples or subway noise and noise related. So how, what advice do you have for people who maybe they think they have PTSD? They're not sure. I'm sure it sounds like there's a lot of gray area. At least there would be for me thinking, am I just a little bit anxious or maybe I have PTSD? How is there a way to kind of navigate that? That's a good question. I would, my advice would be if you have access to healthcare, is to speak to your doctor um, and get help through either social workers, counselors, or uh, psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. Because um, what, like trauma is also very personal. Um, what, and you know, it's, it's a person's ability to um, say like, you know, for example, if I was in a car accident, I would not consider it too much trauma, whereas somebody else would consider it a big trauma. So there isn't, mm-hmm. can't really define trauma because it's a very personal thing. Um, so and sometimes if, what we end up finding traumatic is not something that we would have expected to find traumatic, right? Yes. And the... Re- irrespective of how you uh, define trauma, the response is the same. Mm-hmm. Right? So you're, you're, you're feeling high levels of anxiety. You have this stress. Uh, the, ex, like the extreme of it is to have a panic attack. And panic attacks are really, 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 really scary. Okay, uh, so let's, let's dive into that a little bit. Because uh, I've never experienced a panic attack. And your platform and your your app to be uh, helps people walk them through it. So uh, one question I, I had is, is, you know, panic attacks do have an acute nature to them, right? So we don't mm-hmm. know that they're happening. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, because I'm certainly not an expert, but we don't know when they're going to happen. And when they do happen, as you say, they're very impactful and very serious. So the techniques mm-hmm. that you have, you and your team have implemented into the platform, would it be helpful for users or potential users to have walked through those steps prior to having a panic attack? Because in that moment, I imagine it might be difficult mm-hmm. to open the app, to get your phone out, to go through it, um, just because mm-hmm. of how, how acute panic attacks can be. Mm-hmm. So ideally, we um, that's why I'm calling it a platform. We have to do enough outreach to people to educate about what is PTSD. Mm. When we were doing, uh, we actually won an award and some uh, funding for this platform. Yeah, I saw so, that. Congratulations. Thank you. So when we were doing the pictures and the presentations, there will be so many people from the audience who come to us and say, you know what, I think my parents have this. And they speak this very specific dialect of Cambodian. Uh, it's not mm. you. No, and you know when do you when can you have when can you release your app in Cambodian language so that I can give it to my parents? Right. Um, so there is this very educational piece where like people uh, listen to our story and go, "Aha! Uh-huh, like I know somebody who has this symptoms, and I think they have PTSD." So because we are doing, because we are finding not a lot of people know PTSD, I think we have to do this education outreach work as well as provide the actual instructions to uh, 
work on or do homework on or how how they breathe when they actually get a panic attack. So there is pre-work to actually using this app. Is the, does the pre-work also extend to family and friends? I know yes. having PTSD might be a very, or is a very personal thing and someone might not be comfortable sharing that with others, but let's imagine that they have just for an example. Uh, so if I'm with my friend or with my brother or a family member and they start to have a panic attack out in public or even at home, I've gone through the platform, I've gone through the app myself and I know, I know the steps, even though I don't have PTSD, mm-hmm. I can help them in that situation. Would you advise that? Actually, that's something we have to test. And I can only speak from my personal experience. Can I speak from my personal experience? Absolutely. That'd be great. So when I had my panic attack, um, when so that I didn't know I have PTSD. So when I had my first panic attack, I didn't have a name for what I was going through. So I was actually, uh, I'm married, I have my, and my partner was not with me the first time I had it. And I didn't tell my partner mm-hmm. what happened to me. Uh, I didn't share with my partner because I was quite, um, there wasn't a sense of shame. There was a sense of, um, you know, I'm very strong uh, because I, I, I was thinking to myself, this was my thought process. I had a, like, I felt this, um, I can't handle this because I've been through worse. Um, right now in Canada, this something happened. I don't know and what happened. It's just something that I have to get over uh, because I was telling myself, oh, I've gone through a really bad war. I can't handle this. And I did not share it with my partner. And I, I remember when I first had that panic attack, I, it's, I can't talk about it. It's actually, re, I'm currently, when I'm talking about it, I re, I'm reliving my trauma. Um, I've gotten better at it, but it's, it's like your, um, your body is completely shut down. You have a brain freeze. Um, your heart is racing really, really fast. You are not breathing. Um, and I, like for me, it was when I first heard the sirens, um, I thought, okay, something is going to happen to me. Um, and then I think if somebody had either touched me or spoken to me, I would have gotten really, really startled. Mm-hmm. I was on my own um like I was just like huddled in one space, um, sitting, like I just sat there for a long time. I did not move. And then I, I guess because, you know, I had that moment of panic in my body kind of adjusted and I started breathing better again. That's when I got up. How long uh, How long did it take for that, what you would say, the, the intenseness of the panic attack to pass? It felt like a really long time, but I would say it's probably about hmm, I can't I can't recall. Okay. Maybe ten minutes, maybe five minutes. I like but you know, when you're in that moment, it's really, really, really It's a total physical response. 
yeah and you know how you see people say you know when you're in trauma you've uh you everything goes in slow motion mm-hmm. and like the time feels very stretched that's kind of how you feel Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. Even if you don't know someone who is struggling with their mental health, you can still get involved. There are many great programs and foundations doing amazing work right here in Canada. Bell's Let's Talk has opened the dialogue. Sick Not Weak, headed by Michael Landsberg, helps us understand that mental illness is a sickness, not a weakness. Saving Tech helps those with PTSD. It's, it's a big community. Together, we can keep making progress around the concept of mental illness. Join the movement and help us continue the dialogue and end the stigma, not only on World Mental Health Awareness Day, but every day. So because, you know, the responses, so my other co-founder and she, and we have a video on our website explaining what a panic attack looks like for different people. Uh, my other co-founder, she was actually in the subway and she was having a panic attack. She uh, she couldn't breathe. She thought she was dying too. Um, and she was in Montreal. Four years ago, I was living in Montreal, very far from my family and my hometown. And one day I was in the subway on my way to work. And suddenly I felt this huge pain in my chest. I couldn't breathe. I thought I was going to die. I was very embarrassed to ask for help as a moment. Afterwards, I went to see a doctor and I found out it was a panic attack. Um, and then like later on, she went to the doctor uh, because she had access to doctors and that's when she was diagnosed with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say like, we need to educate about what a panic attack looks like. And we have that video to say, look, this is what it could look like potentially. Good. Um, and then for friends and family, like you need to have, because our platform is focusing on a very specific thing. Mm-hmm. If you're having a panic attack, um, right now we ha- just have affirmations and affirmations don't work for everyone. Um in four languages right now uh which yeah, I, was, is, I was gonna ask you how many languages you have so you have which are the four we have english french mandarin and tamil so the affirmation is saying everything is going to be okay everything will be okay okay so that's the line yeah, so this is one of the affirmations my therapist gave me just like to ground myself to say, okay, like you're going to come out of this. But this is an affirmation is used for somebody who knows who's been diagnosed with PTSD, who knows they have PTSD and who have um, got tools in their box to cope with the, a panic attack. So the first, but the first tool is to do breathing exercises. So that's what we are focusing on right now. We are building, we are writing and recording scripts to uh, on box breathing. So box breathing um, 
is used in the army and by the seals and it like a lot of scientific studies prove that it really helps calm the body down if you're having a really uh, flight mode response to triggers and traumas and things let's do some deep breathing together to help you feel better to help you focus on your breathing find a quiet dimly lit environment to practice breathing it will help you focus on the practice if you're new to it we will go through four steps in this exercise um so what it does how you do it is you inhale for a count of 4 step 1 slowly exhale through your mouth getting all the air out of your lungs step 2 inhale slowly and deeply through your nose 1 2 3 you hold your breath for a count of 4 you exhale for a count of 4 you hold your breath again for a count of 4 so it goes in a square and you repeat that um and the holding of the breath actually releases carbon dioxide in your blood which actually uh has this calming response okay um, and effective and this is what i use myself for example i know walking into a subway it's still like my heart um you know heart beats a little faster when i have need to go into a subway so my response is because i know i'm going to have this response i need to prepare my body so i'll do this breathing exercise wow. before i in well yeah thank you for sharing that experience with us that's that's a good example um so that that yeah. begs the begs the question a little bit um depending on the trauma and and you make a good point that it's very hard to define trauma um because on your website you recommend that or one of the steps or one of the maybe follow up steps is for people using it to write about the trauma mm-hmm. is that i guess the the question kind of is does ptsd um simply go away can it be reduced are there steps such as writing about trauma help to reduce uh tra- these tra- traumas or maybe it's a personal answer maybe it depends on each person but in your case going to subways will will the 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 trauma the trigger be re- reduced and and how how can that happen so ptsd never goes away you obviously with it um the only Tra- a person who's gone through trauma um you so the three features we focus on are for three types of um healing so the panic attack so the breathing exercise we're doing it's for uh if you're having an it's an immediate response if you're having a panic attack do some breathing calm down uh but it does not help you not get another response if you have a trigger So for long term healing there are some strategies that there are many strategies that uh therapists recommend uh there's exposure therapy there's written uh exposure therapy there's journaling there are different types of uh um therapies you can um follow for long term healing mhm and we are focusing on because it's a platform our intention is to get this to the folks who need it with no cost um right. 
And so writing is actually a really good form of therapy, uh, writing. Uh, and the written exposure is, exposure therapy is when you're exposed to the trauma, but it's guided uh, and very intentional um, so that you are able to revisit that trauma and heal from it and say, okay, I'm okay now. Um, so there is like a specific set of questions we ask, um, you know, okay. what are you afraid of right now? And then like went through the reasoning process, your, your um, therapist will recommend that like you're in Canada right now, you're physically safe at the moment. What Good. are the chances of something bad happening? So that reasoning, uh, it has to like, that written, the exposure needs to happen, but in a very contained and intentional way. The other feature that we have, which is, uh, proven to work really well is called eye movement desensitization. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you verbally retell what it does is it diminishes negative feelings that's associated with trauma. And this, uh, uh, it's how your brain is wired. So you focus on this moment that's going across. Um, so imagine if your screen, your laptop screen, and imagine there's a like a ball that's bouncing from the bottom left to the top right and it's constantly moving and you just keep following that movement with your eyes and then you verbally retell your trauma like you know I felt really bad when I heard the silence because I thought I was um, going to be exposed to a bomb or something like that and you verbally retell what's happening to you while keeping your eye on that moment, what it does is your brain, your left brain rewires in a way so that over time when you keep doing these sessions, you associate less trauma to that trigger. So when I keep doing these sessions, wow. associate less trauma to hearing the sirens. And just, it's almost like rewire, it is rewiring your pro, uh, your brain. It's such a good venture. It's such a, a good idea. Uh, we talked about this earlier in the show. But what, one of the biggest challenges, perhaps hurdles or just realities of newcomers to Canada, international students, refugees, immigrants, etc., is, as you mentioned, lack of, or at least initially, lack of healthcare, lack of accessibility to medical professionals. So I think in this case, this is absolutely wonderful. And from the teaching perspective, you know, this is something that we can grab onto and really recommend to students if they come to us and that they don't always and as we know, but if they do, this is something that we can advise them, refer. I'm assuming you would recommend not only using this platform, use it in conjunction with um, medical medical help, either by therapy or otherwise, right? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, absolutely get help. Our long-term goals for this platform is to um, uh, actually work together with hospitals and therapists um, and Good. where they can recommend these um, these exercises but also keep track of um, how the patient is doing because when you're in therapy the therapist will assign you a lot of homework and if you don't do that homework you're not your recovery is not going to be better okay. um, because the therapist is not with a patient 24 seven, uh, but a panic attack or trauma can happen throughout the day. 
Um, so ultimately our goal is to turn this into an app that includes biofeedback, which includes, okay, how is my patient sleeping? Are they sleeping throughout the night? Uh, if, if you see the patient is not sleeping well, then you know, like maybe the set of therapies that is, um, is not working out. So maybe you need to switch strategies. So getting that feedback back to the therapist, um, which would lead to better outcomes for the patients, which then ultimately leads to better, um, you know, there is actually a health burden in Canada right now, which is 3.5 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lack of research, ther- like lack of resources. There's actually a shortage of psychotherapists. Um, that's because they are, you know, still working on patients. Um, they're not able to monitor the patient's 24 seven. They're not able to get that feedback immediately, uh, which means, um, you know, the outcomes are not that great. A lot of, refugees are actually using it because there's less stigma attached to using technology versus actually going to a physical doctor fascinating that you're not stigmatized wow yeah i was i was thinking about that as you were talking and i was wondering there is a and i was going to phrase it as a stereotype or maybe a myth but i that's just in my mind and maybe you can debunk it or or confirm that is a myth that at least in, in my experience with with students you know, even ones that want to come forward and, and are asking for help. Again, the services, at least of schools, usually are, are English only. And perhaps uh, they, maybe, maybe this is the myth. They are not as comfortable going forward to, if they have to do it in English. Um, and even then, as you say, lack of resources to, or you know, lack of doctors, lack of therapists, the wait lines or wait times can be lengthy as well. So a digital platform, I think, is a great one. Is there is is it a myth that newcomers or immigrants have a, a harder time you used the word shame earlier and i don't know if that's pro- appropriate or not but is it a myth that newcomers have a harder time coming forward with these types of issues uh a newcomer goes through a whole lot of emotions mm-hmm. um first is grateful i would say uh there's so if you're coming in from traditionally South Asian, Middle Eastern, African kind of countries, there's this gratitude and indebtedness that's kind of in our culture that's also built in. Uh, So you're grateful for being safe. There's also, um, what do you call that? Uh, It's called, uh, I, I, I think it's called survivor syndrome, where you feel this guilt that you survived when your family didn't make it. Right. And you're safe. Um, then you're also struggling with language. Language is really, really hard. If you're not able to communicate with someone, how do you overcome that barrier? Um, I think I speak English well, but I struggle a lot to put into words what I'm thinking because English is not my first language. So I'm like, why can't I just say the thing I want to say? Like, because... what happens when English is not your first language is you're constantly translating in your head, which is also very exhausting. Mm-hmm. The way the languages are structured, the grammar is different, the verb is different, the verb comes first, and like you know, so, and then like when you don't speak English well, or when you're speaking to somebody and they don't get you, then you 
kind of go back into your shell and you don't want to say it again. Um, so there are like a lot of emotions and things for newcomers to unpack. And that's probably the reason why they don't come forward with what they want. But there's all obviously always there's the uh, the shame and the not shame. I don't like to use the word. Shame. Yeah, it's, I don't like that word either. But I know what um, you mean. There is the stigma of mental health, uh, and it's maybe it's more acute in certain cultures. But even in Canada, like nobody talks about mental health. It's right. only recently we've put so much effort to be more open about it and share and say it's okay to be not okay. And this is what not okay means. This is such a fantastic idea, Sakina. You and your team should be, should be very proud. I'm sure you are very proud of yourselves. And and looking at your website, you you, you have won an award, as as you said, the Social Impact Award. You guys have won, and I'm sure you'll win many awards going forward because this is extremely useful and it's it's needed. You know, the point of this podcast and the point of all of this is to talk about mental health, but also for for those. You know, in any country, but in this case, in Canada, of, of those who whose English English is not their first language, and this will be a big, big, big aid uh, to them. Mm-hmm. And so, I thank you for doing it and, and your team. And I'm glad that thank you were you able to to come on and talk about it. If folks are interested in your in what you're doing or want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they contact you? It's savingtech at gmail.com, S-A-V-Y-N-T-E-C-H at gmail.com. And you can also visit our website, which is savingtech.com, S-A-V-Y-N-T-E-C-H.com. Beautiful. Great. Uh, Sakina, thank you so much for joining us. This was very insightful. The purpose of the podcast is to try and educate and teach lots of people, and I learned probably more than I've learned in a long time talking to you for these few minutes. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you. This concludes our show on mental health. Mike, Leo, and I would like to thank everyone involved in the show for their generous time, support, and insight. This episode was inspired by our own struggles and a feeling of helplessness helping our own students. We wanted to open the dialogue about how to do that and mental health in general, especially for those who are new to Canada. We hope we've accomplished this somewhat, that you found value in listening and that we all continue the march towards even more dialogue and ending the stigma. Please see our blog posts about this episode for links to mental health care centers which come recommended from the professionals involved with this episode. If you have a comment, feedback, or just want to talk, please don't hesitate to reach out to us, info at learnyourenglish.com. I'm Andrew. Thanks for listening, for listening to others, and for keeping the conversation going. been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.